series today, and it's called, Has God Left the Building? Godly Wisdom in a World that Knows Better. And it's really going to be a study on the letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians. Well, I want to start by saying, y'all know, as God left the building, it reminded me of that saying we've all heard, Elvis has left the building. And I was curious about that because we've all heard that. And I go, where did that come from? Now, I know Elvis left the building at some point. So that became a thing. And they inter, you know, interject somebody else's name. But I said, where did that come from? So I did a little study. And apparently in November of 1956, in the, it was kind of first coined, Elvis has left the building. He was doing a concert in Detroit. And he wowed the crowd and they were trying to mob him and he as soon as he finished the last song he threw his guitar over his shoulder and ran out the door to a running car who sped him away and it says his press agent Oscar Davis at the time was on the on the stage and he says Elvis has left the building hold it hold it he's gone so nobody could go after him. And then they said in December of 1956, a month later, he's in Shreveport, Louisiana at the Louisiana Hayride Show, which was obviously something he had done before. And uh, he was very popular at this time, but he was early on the um, docket, if you will. There were a lot of other singers, I think Johnny Cash included. But he was early, and after he finished, the kids went crazy. They kept calling him to come back on the stage. They wanted more of Elvis. And again, someone had to come out and say, and I think this guy's name this particular time was Horace Logan, and he had to come out and say, please, young people, Elvis has left the building. He has gotten in his car. He has driven away. Now, please take your seats. Because there were all these other artists that were getting ready to come on stage. And then as time went on, I think later there was another guy named Al Devoren who closed out almost all of Elvis's concerts by saying, Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Thank you and good night. So that's kind of where that came from. Now I say all that to say that when Elvis left the building... It was to escape the mob of fans. They wanted to get his autograph. They wanted to touch him. They wanted more of Elvis. Um, but he had to move on because there was another mob in another city somewhere waiting to hear him and to listen to him and watch him. But as I thought about what's going on in our world right now, all the different issues, and none of these issues are really necessarily new. Now, yeah, the pandemic is maybe new for us, but there's been other Diseases in history haven't there. Much, much worse than this. There's been racial tension in history, and things have gotten escalated even more than they have now, hasn't it? That's been a part of it. But I wonder what God thinks about all that's going on and how we're handling it. I wonder what He thinks about how we as Christians are responding to all of these different things. It's almost as if God left the building, but no one even noticed. All of a sudden, we woke up from our busyness and the things that we put our attention on, and all of a sudden, we go, where's God? Did he leave? Is he here? And sometimes we wonder. When we go through hard times, we do wonder, is God really here? Does he know what I'm going through? Does he know what's going on in my family, in my life, in my job, in my finances, in our country? Does he know this? 
And that's not unusual because when we read the Old and New Testaments, we read of God followers throughout history who ask those same questions. God, where are you? Moses thought that. Abraham thought that. David puts that out in his Psalms a lot. God, where are you? Some of the prophets. Even Jesus asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left the building? So that's normal for us to think those things. But we didn't notice, I think, that God, and God hasn't left, but we sometimes think he has. And we don't notice sometimes because we were preoccupied with the latest star, the latest Elvis, the latest thing in our lives. Or even with trying, as I think about young people, there's a few of them in here, they're trying to be the star on TikTok or whatever. i got to make enough videos so I will get followers and so we're preoccupied with the latest star becoming the latest star who has the mob's attention. And we don't really need God because we know better. We've become so sophisticated in our times. We can figure all this out. Do we really need God? Because we know what His Word says, but as we've moved forward in history and in our intellect and our wisdom, we don't really need God's wisdom anymore. Or we'll refer to it. And maybe it has a, a spot in our heart, but do we really believe it and follow it? His ways and wisdom are outdated. We're more progressive. We're more forward-thinking. Now, we can think of this as some sort of a new phenomenon, but it's not. When we read the pages of the Bible, the same ignoring of God and pretending that we can just go on and God will bless us anyway, the same ignoring of His wisdom, of His character for our own wisdom has gone on throughout history, at least for a period of two or two. But then something happens in history. And especially in the Old Testament, something would happen to Israel. The enemy would take them over. And they would know, God has left the building. He's turned his back on us for a minute because we have, we have turned our back on him for so long. And then a major change or repentance takes place, a revival or awakening happens. You've heard about the Great Awakening in the United States. That's actually how the Christian churches were formed during that time. But let's consider this morning, is it possible that we are living in a time where there is going to be the next Great Awakening? Maybe that's what, what God is doing during this time and all this stuff that's happening. I don't know that, y'all, but it does seem like maybe God's doing something. Um, as Phil just said, God is alive and well. He is doing things in the world, whether we recognize it or acknowledge it or a part of it or not. He is. It's not like he's fallen asleep at the wheel and he's like, oh no, I didn't mean for this to happen. i got to fix this. No, he always has had a plan, but he's waiting to see what we're... And I'm telling you, yesterday and Friday when I heard the different speakers that I heard, all very diverse speakers from all over the world... Speaking, I was encouraged because as much bad news as we hear on the news, y'all, there is amazing, amazing things going on in this world right now that God is using people and people are faithful. And I'm very, very encouraged by that and I hope you are as well. But I want us to consider the first century and what was going on in that first century. Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit has come upon this group of people on the day of Pentecost. And now they are following the Great Commission. And it is 
slowly but methodically and consistently going out all over the world about who this Jesus is. And Jesus had transformed a man named Paul from Saul to Paul. Had transformed his thinking and his mission. Because Paul was a thinker. Paul had a mission, but the mission he was on was counter to what God had called him to do. And y'all know on the road to Damascus, God got his attention. And Paul made it clear that Jesus not only wanted to get his attention, but he wanted to get everybody's attention. He wanted to transform everybody's life. But as you can imagine, a lot of people thought Paul was crazy. Some thought he was a heretic. You're ruining our religion. You're ruining the traditional religion that we grew up with. What do you think, what do you think you're, you're doing? But some people didn't want their lives transformed. My life is good just like it is. I'm on a good path. I'm the captain of my ship. Why would I need this Jesus to come into my life? Why would I need to submit? Why would I need to surrender to him when everything's going just fine in my life? And these rejections, these arguments may have at times discouraged Paul, but Paul kept going. It didn't stop him from this journey, this mission that God had called him to, that he absolutely heard from Jesus himself. And the world was being transformed, like I said, slowly but yet methodically and consistently. People were becoming Jesus followers. And I think about those Jesus conversations that Phil was talking about. That's exactly what Paul did. He went to a city went to the temple, started having conversations, sat down somewhere in the city, started talking to people, and they didn't have phones to distract them in that time so you could actually have a conversation. And out of those Jesus conversations, it was making people think, who is this Jesus? I just talked to this guy named Paul, and he absolutely is on fire for this Jesus. What can he do in my life? So he discipled leaders he kept preaching, he kept teaching, he kept sharing those Jesus conversations, he kept meeting with people, sharing the good news. He kept writing letters when he couldn't be there in person, even when he was in prison. And those he led to become followers of Christ, he continued to disciple. And he discipled leaders, he encouraged transformation and challenged people to follow Jesus in every aspect of their life. And let me just make a side note about last week's sermon I'm glad that that young man is going back to school because I might not have a job. He did a tremendous job. And that's what he said. We are supposed to, in every aspect of our life, ask, what does Jesus? He controls my thoughts, how I treat people, the love, um, all of that. So I was very encouraged by that. All young people are not crazy and doing nothing with their lives no matter what the news says sometimes. So I was very encouraged by that. But for the next several weeks, I want us to look at, at, at specifically the book, the book, the letter of 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote to this group of Jesus followers. In a very progressive city in the first century, it was a major part of trade. People are coming from all over the world, many different cultures, many different faces, languages, many different religions are coming and going through there and people are having all kind of conversations. It's the, the Greek culture is, is in full swing, philosophy, and everybody's talking. So this country, I mean this particular city of Corinth, there's a lot going on, but it's also known for something else, a lot of immorality. I mean, I guess it would be like Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras, maybe Las Vegas, somewhere like that. 
And what you do in Corinth stays in Corinth. But people are coming in and going out. And there were all these different temples, pagan temples. And one was to uh, 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 the, the sex goddess. And there were over a thousand prostitutes that were employed there. So a lot of people wanted to worship there because you got to sleep with a prostitute during worship. It was pretty popular, and it was also very lucrative money-wise. So Paul's going in there, and he's coming. If you want to read about how Paul started Corinth or how he got there, read uh, Acts chapter 18, and it talks about how he got there. And he's coming off some discouraging things that happened in a place called Athens. And Paul's a little discouraged, but he goes in there and he says, this is a, a, a lot of immorality here. I don't know if this is the best place for a church but I'm going to try because these people need Jesus. And he stayed there a year and a half, and he started what turned out to be one of the largest churches that he actually started. But as he moved on down the road and continued to preach and start churches, about a year later he starts to hear that, man, the church in Corinth is not doing very well. They are falling back into that stuff that goes on in Las Vegas in Corinth that they're known for, and there's stuff going on in the church and I need to deal with that. But it was a real place. So he wrote this letter and he tried to tackle these issues. And it was, it, it was as if God had left the building in Corinth. And God needed to get them back. Uh, Paul needed to get God and these people back on track together. And it was obvious that the folks there had allowed the culture to seriously affect their thinking and their behavior. And in a, in, and, and, in a, and as a process of that, it was affecting the church and its influence in the community. So the letter can be broken down into five categories which Paul deals with. And, and we're going to look at those in the next few weeks. The, the first one is divisions. Divisions that happen within the church, within the body of Christ. Then he deals with sexual issues that are going on in the culture. And he deals with food issues. Yeah, food issues? Yeah, food issues. And then he deals with worship services, or the cool word now is gatherings. The gatherings that were happening. The issues that were happening during these gatherings and these worship services. And then at the end of the letter, he deals specifically, very powerfully, with issues concerning what people are saying about the resurrection of Jesus. Well, did he really resurrect? And Paul powerfully deals with all these issues. So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at that. And today we're going to look at chapter 1. And I know I didn't tell you, so this is my fault back there in the booth, so don't freak out. But um, I am going to read a part of uh, 1 Corinthians that I didn't tell you all to put on the screen. Because I just want to read the first part of it. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Or if it's on your, your phone, if you don't have, a, uh, have it on your phone... Um, version is a great app to have if you don't have it already. It's fantastic. You ought to get that. And uh, I don't think God cares if it's on your phone as long as you're reading His Word. Um, so I'm going to read the first part of this and then we're going to kind of focus on chapters, uh, uh, verses 18. So Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. He's reminding them of who they are. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours. He's connecting the whole world. Grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. With all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. 
God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying, I'm thankful for you. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget your identity. I know you live in a cesspool of sorts, but don't forget that. And then he says, I appeal, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me. He's gotten this message from a lady, a real lady named Chloe. He says, man, I'm concerned about our church. She says, there is quarrels among you. Verse 12, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter or Simon. Still another, I follow Christ. So there's these different preachers that have come into Corinth and have shared the good news. And they're good preachers, they're good teachers. And we all have our favorites, don't we? You know? I know some of you, when you were watching our, our um, services at home, you got, man, Craig's getting bored today, and you flipped to Andy Stanley. I get that. I know it happens. Or whoever else was preaching that day. I get it. We know that happens. But he's saying that's not the way it should be. We're all preaching the gospel. And he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he's telling them, I know what's going on there, but I want to address this issue of division right off the bat. But I want to kind of focus on the last part of this, and I'm going to read it and then kind of unpack it a little bit. So, for the message of the cross, listen to this, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And he's quoting there from Isaiah, and I want to read a little bit more of that a little bit later. But then Paul asked, verse 20, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. What? What did he just say there? Kind of, you have to kind of think about that for a minute. I'm going to read that again. For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, but many were of noble, not many were of noble birth. But God chose, listen to this, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Man, he starts off that letter good, doesn't he? So what I want us to see is, is that he gives us this greeting, he gives us this thanks, he gives this encouragement, he mentions this the specific division that's going on in the church and the issue he wants to address. But I want us to focus on that last part, 18 through 31. There is a huge difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Do y'all not see that in our culture right now? There is so much worldly wisdom that's trying to tell us what we should believe and what we should think and how we should live. And godly wisdom, and, and some people are... Uh, you know, kind of cast that off. No, we, that's, you know, yeah, that was good for them, but that's just a bunch of men that wrote the Bible, and that was their opinion. But we feel like, well, I know what Jesus says, I know what God's Word said, but I feel like, have you heard this? I hear my own kids saying this, and I keep reminding them, it doesn't matter how you feel. I mean, it matters how you feel, but you can feel however you feel, but it doesn't change that this is God's Word. You don't have to like it, you don't have to agree it, you don't have to obey it. But it is what it is, and it doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God is who He says He is, and I believe He is, there's a huge difference between this godly and, and, and worldly wisdom. It completely changes our perspective of who we are and who God is, or even if He is in our culture. If God is, and I believe He is, you know why I believe He is? Because He says in the Bible, what does He say? I am. I am. Who am I to say sent you, Moses said? I am. He covers all of history, all of the universe. And ultimately dwelling among us, revealed through history. In the life of Jesus Christ, God was revealed in flesh. Then it is critical that we seek and submit and surrender to His wisdom, if He is the God of all creation. But if we convince ourselves that there is no God, atheism, which goes out, and I know that. don't mean we hate those people. We try to convert those people, share with them, encourage them. Or that we can't even know if there is a God, agnosticism, there's a lot of that out there. Then we have no reason to seek or to submit or to surrender to His wisdom because if God isn't, then it's me. I get to decide. We seek our own wisdom. We seek the wisdom of the world or of the culture of this age we're in because we know better because there is no God. And if you can convince yourself there is no God or we can't possibly know there is a God, then we don't have to listen to His Word, do we? And we can just make it up as we go. So we either view God's wisdom, which is exemplified, Paul says, through the message of the cross, as the power, he says, to those who are being saved. When we believe God's word and we believe that is really from God and that's really his wisdom, then all of a sudden it, it does something in our mind and our heart and it says, that saves me. That grace saves me. It does something. Or God's wisdom is exemplified through the message of the cross as viewed as foolishness to other people who he said are what? 
are perishing. Well, that's foolishness. That's crazy. Paul was saying, you're either in the process of being saved, and you say, I've already been saved, Craig, but it is a lifelong process of being sanctified, isn't it, y'all? That's why we're here today, because if I don't ever come together with y'all, if I don't ever read this together and sing with y'all about what we believe, God's wisdom, then you know what? I'm going to start slipping back into the worldly wisdom. We're in the process of being transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then I submit to His ways, to His wisdom. Or we're in the process of perishing with the worldly wisdom you submit to. And there's a lot of people in our world that are perishing. And God says, I don't want anyone to perish, but all to what? Come to repentance through Jesus Christ. But the reality is there's some people. Now I want you, he quotes that Isaiah passage, but I want to read just a little bit more of that Isaiah passage. I went to verse 20, uh, chapter 29. Listen to what he says in context. He said, the Lord says these people, he's talking about his people who he called, who had basically just ignored God and says, oh, we're God's people. We can do whatever we want. We can get into the worldly wisdom and we can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that religion and just mix it all in and it'll be fine. God said, no, it's not fine. You've rejected me. He says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise, this is one that Paul quotes, will perish. The, intelligent, uh, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord. Who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing. But y'all, we hear in our world people saying that. What does God know? He didn't make me. I just, I just happened. I'm an accident. The created saying to the creator, you didn't make me, you know nothing. Paul is saying that this is the philosophy that's around you. This is what Greek culture says. We can become so smart with wisdom that we don't need God. We can all figure all this out ourselves. And that was the culture in Corinth. It was self-centered. It was arrogant. It does not acknowledge the power. It does not acknowledge the character, the holiness, or the grace of God. And y'all, I'm seeing the same thing in our culture. And it's concerning. God has made, the fool, has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Look at history. He said Jews demand a miraculous or supernatural sign. They did. Remember when Jesus was doing miraculous signs. They go, we know you've done these signs, but we want to see another one. Show us who you are. They still rejected God, didn't they, the Jews? Even when he raised from the dead. Greeks looked for wisdom. And Paul was trying to explain it. He just came from Athens, this intelligentsia capital and he was shaken because they just rejected Jesus and the truth that he preached to them. It was a stumbling block for the Jews because they were into work salvation. We can do it ourselves. We can do better. Just give us another law and we'll do better. Let's just keep adding laws and we'll just keep adding laws and we'll work our way to heaven. No, it's a stumbling block. Jesus was a stumbling block when he said it's by grace you are saved. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. In the Greek culture, there were so many gods. And guess what? Gods do not become down to earth as servants. Gods do not die on a cross. They don't die. They're heroes. So we reject that. Paul, Jesus. 
God is still calling both Jews and Greeks, Paul said. All of humanity to the power and the wisdom of Christ. We can't really comprehend the power and mind of God. On God's worst day, Paul says he is wiser and stronger than any human as if he had a worse day. The foolishness of God. Does God have foolishness? You don't want to answer that, do you? It's like, just stop beating your wife? Well, apparently, Paul was saying, well, wait a minute. God did have a worse day. You know what that worst day was? Good Friday, wasn't it? That was the worst day. When the wisdom of the world seemed to prevail and saying, we're going to kill God because we don't agree with his wisdom and the way he sees the world. But he prevailed. He prevailed not only when through his power, through defeating sin and death, the two things that separated us from him. If he had listened to our wisdom, he never would have went to that cross. Paul said it like this in his letter to Colossians chapter 3. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. That day, he was disarming powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross. It's how God's wisdom works, not worldly wisdom. And then he says in the last part, think of what you were when you were called. He says, y'all couldn't pick anything and say, look, I was called because I was in such great stature in this community. He goes, no, none of you in that church were. You simply heard the message and you respond to it. It pricked your heart right where you were. And then he says this great thing that I love, the foolish. God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. Remember Noah? As he's building that ark, everybody's going, what an idiot. What an idiot. What are you doing? Not God's not going to rain. It's not going to flood. But yet he used Noah. Abraham, why are you moving from your home? That's crazy. You've been here your whole life. Moses, what do you mean you're going to go tell Pharaoh to give him your, his, whole, his whole workforce and turn them loose? Millions of people turn his whole million-person workforce loose. That's, you're an idiot. Foolish. But he shamed the wise, didn't he? The weak things to shame the strong. Remember Gideon? We heard a great message about that yesterday. Remember Gideon? He was hiding in the wine press going, oh, I hope the enemy doesn't come. And God addresses him as you mighty warrior. What? Yeah, the weakness. Remember David went against Goliath. The weak, couldn't even, he couldn't even wear Saul's armor. It was, it was too heavy. But with a sling... God shamed the strong, the lowly, the despised, things that are not to nullify the things that are. In Jesus' time, he used lepers. He went to lepers and touched them. A Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus, a hated, despised person, a man born blind. Jesus went to all of these people and used those despised, lowly things to nullify the things that were in those times. And he says, so that no one can boast. When we realize it's not my power, we have to give credit somewhere, and that credit should be to God. It is because God, and you were in in Jesus Christ, he says, who has become wisdom from God. Jesus exemplified God's wisdom as he lived it out in the flesh. He is our righteousness, he is our holiness, Paul says, and he is our redemption. I want you all to say that this morning. Jesus is... My holiness. Jesus is my righteousness. 
Jesus is my redemption. Worldly wisdom can't give you that. It can't give you holiness. It can't give you redemption. It cannot give you that. It only deceives you into believing that you can get that on your own. Now, if you were saying that, you were going, this is stupid. I can't believe he's making us say that. (laughs) Be careful. Because you know what? If that seems foolish to you, if that seems unfair to you, if that seems exclusive of other faiths to you, be careful. Be careful because you know what? You're embracing the wisdom of the world. And you know what that means? You are in the process of perishing instead of redemption. Man, you're being judgmental, man. No, I'm just telling you what God's Word says. But if it seems like real hope to you, real freedom to you, and real salvation to you, then guess what? You are in the process of being saved. Man, when I heard those preachers, when we, I, all the guys that were here, when we heard those preachers, y'all, were we not excited? We were excited because that is salvation, man. That's exciting that there's guys all over the world preaching this stuff. They are in the process. It's either one of the other. You're either in the process of being saved or you are perishing. You say, what? It's not that simple, Craig. Oh, yes, it is. Jesus always made those comparisons. Think about Jesus on the cross, two criminals. One chose wisdom. He was saying the same things. The ones on the ground were going, if you really are the Son of God, come down off the cross, Jesus. If you're really the Savior, so the, one of the criminals right next to Jesus said that. If you're really the cross, then save us too, Jesus. And the other guy said, see, he was falling for the wisdom of the world. Even in his death, even as he was literally perishing, he's still hanging on to the wisdom of the world. And then another one chose to say, when you come into your kingdom today, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus, as I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise. Even though he was literally perishing, he held on to the fact that the power of God could save him. And it did, didn't it? Even at the last minute. Well, this morning we took communion together to remind us that we believe that. That that wisdom, that what happened on that cross is the wisdom that we need to base every aspect of our life on. And I hope we will. And when we debate people, and I think it's healthy to debate. I don't like it behind a computer screen. But I think it's healthy to debate people in love and grace and telling them, but tell them about Jesus. Say, can we set that issue aside, but let's talk about Jesus for a minute. Even if we can't agree on that issue, what did Jesus do for you? What did he do? Well, he saved us. And that's ultimately what we need. That issue over there needs to be dealt with. But first I need to understand that I need to be saved and understand Jesus' wisdom. And when I start following in those lines, then guess what? Then we can address that issue in the, through the lens of Jesus and his gospel. That's how we need to address those issues. So this morning we're going to offer an invitation. Maybe there's somebody here today that says, you know what? I want to be part of that saving part. I don't want to be just perishing. I want God's wisdom and I want to be a part of that. And if you need to do that today, guess what? Our baptistry's working again. Thanks to Richard. Y'all tell Richard, thank you, man. That guy's such a hard worker. He got, we got a plumber in here, and we got it fixed. It's heated. It's running. So if somebody needs to make a decision today, Mike's going to come and lead us. Or is it James? I'm not sure. Is it Mike? And if you have a decision today, um, we're going to sing. So let's stand together and sing.